0: I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm here with Sharon Lees-Normand, a professor of healthcare policy and biostatistics at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard School of Public Health. Professor Normand has co-authored a perspective article about post-marketing surveillance of medical devices. Professor Normand, although the U.S. laws governing medical devices have been updated over time, there's been a fair amount of criticism suggesting that they're still inadequate to protect the public health. What, what kinds of serious device safety problems have been identified in recent years and how big a public health issue is this?
1: Depending on how you measure uh, what is big, uh, you could come up with different answers. I, what comes to mind are a few devices recently that there have been problems, not just in the US, but worldwide. Uh, metal on metal hip implants, for example, has been one type of device that is uh, widely implanted in many individuals. Uh, it's increasing in terms of the people who are getting it because the population's aging and more people have osteoarthritis and sometimes become uh, obesity. Younger patients are being implanted in it, and, and that was a, a, a device in which uh the metal ions were sort of destroying the tissues at at the site of the implant, and and that was a problem where there were recalls and interchanges among various countries uh, in in terms of their uh, regulatory agencies. So the UK, Australia, and the US had lots of discussions about these metal-on-metal hip implants in general, Um, and they really were quite painful, and there was a warning out. That's one broad class, and, and there, I think, is a big pub- public health issue because so many people are implanted with these devices, and they live there a long time. Uh, they're supposed to stay for about 10 years, and because they're implanting them in younger patients, they could be implanted for a, a longer time. So that's one type. We've had problems with, uh, I think it was in 2006, with uh, drug eluting stents. And although not a recall, uh, there was an issue regarding um, stent thrombosis, a very serious uh, event that could happen to patients who were implanted with these uh, stents that had drugs on them. Um, and so in 2006, it saw, uh, again, worldwide, it was first raised in a conference in Spain. Uh, and then it just, it, it, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, um, lots of different uh, professional societies brought that to bear. Uh, and then, of course, we have the implantable cardiac defibrillators, and we've got leads uh, that uh, are failing. And again, that's something that uh, has a, a big potential population. And I, I think it's probably more important. Although we care, you know, we care mostly about the U.S. I think it's important to emphasize that these are worldwide problems now. These are really technologies that uh, device manufacturers are marketing worldwide.
0: And in the U.S., you, you recently spent some time at the FDA. Do you agree with uh, their critics that device regulation needs to be enhanced?
1: Yes, the regulation uh, could be enhanced. Uh, for example, uh, I, I think most people are aware that there is uh, no unique device identifier uh, currently uh, available. Unlike uh, drugs, where there are national drug codes that are these very long numbers that are uh, able to identify the make, the model, the dose, uh, whether it's a a pill packet or uh, powder, um, those types of identifiers aren't available for devices. So uh, we do need some regulation in order to actually track who gets what. Uh, from a public health standpoint, not from a manufacturer standpoint, but really to understand from a, a public health uh, viewpoint who gets what so that we could follow up uh, in terms of surveillance. There are issues regarding how devices get approved. Uh, that issues have been raised about, um, there are basically, there's basically two pathways for approval uh, for devices. And those are pre-market approval and then there's something called a 510 k pathway. Uh, The reason that a manufacturer's device goes into one of those two pathways, although it may seem clear, sometimes it's not clear at all. So I I think the regulation governing um, those pathways uh, and determining how a device gets to market probably needs more clarity. And then there are other issues about follow-up and things such as that.
0: You mentioned the 510K process, whereby class 2 devices and also some class 3 or high-risk devices are approved on the basis of their similarity to previously approved products. And that pathway, as you call it, has come under increased scrutiny. Last year, an Institute of Medicine committee recommended scrapping it entirely. What's your view of that process?
1: So I, I don't think it needs to be scrapped entirely. Uh, so that's the first thing. There are some uh, smart and thoughtful aspects of that pathway that that should be retained. Um, for example, um, I- I- There are predicate devices, devices that currently exist on the market. And uh, will a uh, device manufacturer, every time they make a small change uh, to a particular device, uh, does it need to go through that whole approval pathway? And I think the answer is no. I mean, there are some changes that are predictable that wouldn't require that much um, new clinical evidence, let's say. However, uh, it also depends on um, how old the data are in which the predicate device has been approved. So we know technology changes, drugs get better. Um, Importantly, the best medical therapy uh, has uh, changed from the time a uh, particular device has been on the market when a new device comes, a new like device comes to market. And so determining what the comparison group is uh, for a new device versus uh, that is a 510k process versus uh, an entirely new first in human uh, device we could worry about sort of what pathway we take but when you're looking at something that's similar one needs to think has therapy improved so much Uh, and so much could be just Six months uh, in terms of needing to undergo more scrutiny, more clinical detail, more collection of data. And so I think thoughts thoughts in terms of what are the key features of a device that make it look like a predicate device? So there could be engineering characteristics, there could be uh, the population in which it's applied. it could be uh, ease of use. So those are features, and I, I'm not sure practically how you measure something to say it is like a predicate device. The FDA has measures. I cannot tell you what those measures are. Um, but but once you do that, then you also ask the question in terms of, uh, is the comparison relevant? Has practice changed uh, enough uh, that we need to really collect new data? And because we don't have currently in the US um, a method to look at safety issues associated with devices that are currently marketed. It's it, its hard to sort of determine is this the right pathway to, to take in some, sense, in some instances.
0: You mentioned earlier uh, the lack of unique device identifiers or UDIs as one of the key obstacles to monitoring the safety of devices. What's happening on that UDI front? And if we make progress, what will it mean in terms of improving safety?
1: So my understanding, uh, it's sitting in the Office of Management and, and Budget right now, uh, in terms of uh, trying to, you know, there's been lots of enthusiasm, it's sitting down, something's going to be reconciled soon, in terms of my understanding the legality of things. In terms of uh, the FDA moving forward, they are currently funding projects to look at demonstration projects of, of these unique device identifiers. I have to know that because uh, we actually, I actually have uh, one of those particular projects. Uh, Cornell University has also been awarded uh, a project from the FDA, a contract to study uh, the how to actually implement a UDI, a unique device identifier. So uh, with that said, there is movement. Uh, I would hope Uh, that uh, this regulation gets passed very quickly, uh, in terms of actually getting the manufacturers and everybody else on board uh, with implementing the UDI.
0: One way to amass that information would be through device registries, which you also write about. And you suggest that we will need sound methods and practical tools for using registry data to monitor safety. Are those tools being developed? What kind of challenge is that?
1: So the tools are being developed. Uh, There are tools from various fronts. You can think of various aspects of a a medical device uh, where one would need um, different scientific uh, algorithms and structures in order to infer uh, various aspects about the device. So there are going to be algorithms, software algorithms, if we're talking about monitoring. You know, we think about telemetry and telemedicine and monitoring um, information. And how do you take um, information um, of, from a person that are, you know, many, many measurements in real time, how do, you, how do you take that information, massage it, and get a signal in order to predict something? So you could think of, if uh, you can even think of smart implants, so there are orthopedic devices that will have a smart implant that actually measures the, the weight, uh, the bearing weight of the, of the, the knee in, in the implant, uh, whether or not you're developing any um, problems, if it was metal on metal, measuring the tissue, you know, so there's smart implants that transmits that information. And then will actually want to predict something to say, you better get to your doctor sooner than later how do you take that ma- those pieces of information that are transmitted uh, in a way that you can identify a signal and that's high-dimensional data. You've got lots and lots of data irregularly spaced. It's not like a clinical trial where we can plan the measurements and ensure that we get the the measurements um, over the time period we really want to get them. So there are issues with related to data collection. There's informa- There's there are methods that are going to be needed to uh, actually infer causality. Again, not a randomized trial. How do we know whether or not a certain feature of a medical device is actually causing a problem. You know, does, does well, let's talk about drug-eluting stents. Do drug-eluting stents cause stent thrombosis? Um, how do you get the information in order to measure that? Again, no one, this is not a, a clinical trial uh, is not going to determine this because there's stent thrombosis, thankfully, is very rare. Um, and you'd need lots and lots of people. So you do need tools, uh, statistical tools, to deal with very high-dimensional Irregularly spaced data. Um, you need statistical tools to combine information across multiple registries. So, if there are registries that aren't, um, uh, you know, some healthcare plans might have some registries on their who, uh, particular uh, types of devices uh, from a higher perspective, countries, some countries have devices. How do we combine all that information in order to learn something about the safety and effectiveness of a device given that if uh, particular device is implanted in one patient in one country who was implanted for the same reason? Maybe they had osteoarthritis, maybe they're a female, maybe they have diabetes. How do we learn if if really we shouldn't be implanting that type of device? And so methods that actually combine data from different sources of information, sources being different sources being countries, different sources being different manufacturers of a similar device, uh, and then really inferring that cause and effect. So those are the statistical problems. People are working on it, and that's something that I think will need far more development, and especially if we get a unique device identifier, how do we actually logistically combine all this information?
0: You describe lots of of needs. (laughs) What do you think is the most important step the FDA should take now?
1: Well, I, I, you probably heard from my earlier comments. I think the UD the unique de- device identifier, that 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 needs to happen yesterday. So that's what that's how I would answer that particular question. I think there there are other things that that they could do. They have the FDA has um, a, a phenomenal uh, set of expertise that exists at their hand. They have terrific engineers, they have terrific epidemiologists, they have terrific statisticians, they've got terrific clinicians and they, they have a, a system in where it's a really team a team-based approach to dealing with any particular problem. Um, and as a consequence, they have lots of different systems that they monitor. Uh, the you know, post-market surveillance. And I'm going to talk about the devices side. I, I am not that familiar with the, the drug side or the biologic side. But from the device side, they have lots of tools. And my sense is I think they, they need to also coordinate those tools a little more. And so they have a, a, a passive reporting, a reporting system. They shouldn't get rid of that. A passive reporting system does provide information. I, I think they should keep that. Uh, there are problems with passive uh, reporting systems, and, and the FDA is aware of that, and they need to supplement it with other tools, and they are thinking about that. They have another program, uh, I think it's called the MedSun program, I'm not going to remember what that acronym stands for, but basically they have a series of hospitals, I think about 300 or so hospitals across the U.S., where they could rapidly rapidly deploy questions. And and get answers. And now that's in the hospital system. Maybe there's something in the outpatient system we could find things about. But again, they've got many tools. I think they need to integrate those more, Um, take a very proactive step to have them more aligned and capitalizing on some of those efficiencies a bit more than they are currently.
0: And how would the device industry, the manufacturers, contribute to this effort?
1: The manufacturers actually have a lot of valuable data. The device menu. So, for example, if we think about leads uh, and implantable cardiac defibrillators, or those, the, the those companies have terrifically detailed information um, for patients that have been implanted with their devices, and so I, I think uh, there's there are issues about um, intellectual property and ownership and what can be shared and can't be shared. Uh, I think that there is a way to get around those issues. I think it would be really uh, beneficial to both the manufacturers, to the FDA, to academics, and most importantly to patients, if the manufacturers were able to contribute that data to some independent source, I don't care who it is, uh, but some independent source where you know one could utilize that information across a broad spectrum of patients um, and uh, proceduralists or providers who, I'm um, um, again, implantable devices that that actually do that because if they could contribute data uh, in a way that wouldn't interfere with any of their um, intellectual property rights, which I think they can, um, I think that would enormously help uh, to learn more about how to, how devices are performing in the post-market setting.
0: What should primary care physicians and other frontline clinicians know about their patients' implantable devices? What should their role be in post-marketing surveillance?
1: I'm glad you said primary care physicians. Um, For many implantable devices, it'll be a proceduralist that that does it. Um, And primary care physicians obviously follow up on their patients. um, But I think sometimes the discussion between the primary uh, care physician and the actual Operator or proceduralist or individual who implants the device, I think there needs to be much more discussion there. Um, I think that they need to obviously they need to know what their patients received. Uh, They need to know the details about that. And in particular, uh, were different components mixed together uh, for a particular implant? um, They need to know um, if it needs to be replaced. These are discussions that often perhaps the proceduralist will have with the patient about when it needs to be replaced. But, you know, decisions with patients may have changed from the time they were initially implanted and it needs to be replaced. And so I'm thinking about, let's think about ICDs in particular. Um, those are things that uh, at, over time, uh, once the patient has, ha- has had that particular implant, things may have changed in their life. Um, they may have it changed so that they feel like they don't want a replacement. Uh, And so, again, primary care physicians really need to be part of the discussion.
0: Thank you, Professor Normand.
1: Thank you very much.